Hello, this is Frank Falvey with Frank Presents. Today we have some guests and we're going to be uh, recapping the election so far. Today it happens to be Thursday, February 5th at 9.15 uh, in the morning. Uh, Jeff Roy is with us and I want to congratulate Jeff on winning re-election to the Yay, Jeff. Massachusetts <laughs> House of Representatives. Well, thank you very much, Frank. I appreciate the well wishes, and I particularly appreciate the support from 94% of the voters. I, I was so encouraged and thrilled with that, and uh, it's such an honor and a privilege to have the opportunity to serve as the state representative, and I'm looking forward to uh, a fifth term on Beacon Hill. There's a lot of work to do, and I have a lot of gas in the tank, and uh, I look forward to doing that and sharing some of the stuff that we do uh, with you here at uh, Franklin Public Radio. Also with us is Jim Jarek, who has uh, many radio programs at 102.9, including Chapters, uh, uh, The Blues Show, uh, Music to Lift the Spirit, and is co-host of Frank's Music. Uh, right. Welcome this morning, Jim. Well, thank you, Frank. Good morning, and congratulations, Rep. Roy. Very, very appreciative of all your service, having worked with you along with the Safe Coalition and, and all of your many um, supports for our community. I am thrilled that you're back at the State House. so congrats. Thank you. And also is Peter J., the uh, director of uh, Franklin uh, Cable TV and uh, uh, Franklin Radio, and uh, a person with long political experience uh, from a, a, a what a, a, a prior life. TV. Yes, uh, I was I was producer of many political commercials and campaigns uh, back in my film producing directing days. And uh, I'm Frank Falvey. You're the guy, Frank. Years. You're the guy, <laughs> <laughs> Jeff. Uh, I've always considered you as the perfect person that knows how to campaign and run an election. What are the essentials locally, what you need to do to, to win election? Well, I, I think one of the most important things you can do um, is to do your job and to do it well and to communicate with people about what you're doing and to bring those people into the mix to join you as you're doing that job so that uh, people uh, feel a part of the process and uh, want to uh, work with you. I think, I think those are essential ingredients. So how do you do that? Um, so um, I love uh, bringing people together, okay? So um, a lot of the work in government is problem solving and how do you solve a problem? Well, one of the best ways to do it is to, is to bring people together. And a problem can be, uh, as we did with uh, the opioid and substance use disorder thing, is, is bringing people together to form a coalition. A problem can be, um, I want to run for an office in town, and uh, how do I get that done? Well, you, you put a team together. I think my first uh, race, uh, I, I called what uh, I brought together what I called the kitchen cabinet, and uh, we sat around the table, and, and we exchanged ideas, and we thought, well, how are we going to communicate what we want to do 
uh, to an audience. And who is our audience? You need to establish who your audience is. Um, so if I was running for school committee, which I did uh, the first time back in 1999, you understand who your audience there is. Uh, town council in uh, 2011, understand who your audience there is. State representative, uh, the audience grew to about 44,000 people. Uh, so those are some real important steps to do it. And uh, by bringing people together, you can uh, establish lanes and you can establish roles and responsibilities. And when your team gets underway and you develop a great synergy, uh, you're going to be successful. And, uh, you know, I watch uh, campaigns uh, rise and fall based on their ability to pull people together. Uh, today, you have uh, the use of social media, which is an important and powerful tool in campaigning. Uh, in the old days, it used to be uh, putting signs out on the roads. And uh, I can tell you, I learned early on in this business, uh, signs don't vote. Okay, they'll, they'll express a, a particular point of view, but that sign will never get off its post and never go down to the polls and cast a vote. So you need to go uh, deep beyond uh, a sign on somebody's lawn. It's, it's an important piece of a campaign, but it's not uh, the essential piece of the campaign. Uh, and uh, communicating uh, on radio and television, uh, on YouTube, today is an, an, another vehicle for getting your message out. Uh, being in the newspaper, I frequently do op-ed pieces. I try to do them with experts in a particular field, and we'll write a piece together, put it in the paper. Uh, blogging is a great way to communicate. Uh, developing and promoting a website is a great way to, uh, to uh, communicate. And showing up is probably the most vital ingredient. Um, I try to go to everything. Uh, it's a, it's a one joke one of my uh, colleagues shared with me. Uh, you have to, in this business, you have to go to the opening of envelopes. You just want to be out there uh, for everything. Uh, you don't want to make people sick and tired of you, but you want to show people that you care what they're doing and that you want to help them improve on what they're doing. That's why I go to events and that's why I try to show up because I truly do care. Um, I had the good fortune to get into uh, the state house at, a, at the age of 50. So I had had a, a long career in the private sector. I had served in local government. So I came at it with a much different perspective and uh, it really helped me uh, to develop a, a great career in the, uh, uh, in the state house. And it's helped me to do uh, some things that uh, I'm very proud of. Uh, I'm very proud of being able to work with folks like uh, Jim Derrick to address substance use disorder. I was so proud to work with the, the team uh, to put together uh, the opening of the SNEP tunnel. And that's a perfect example. That was a campaign to get that tunnel. And uh, I want to highlight the work of Chris Flynn and Franklin TV. Uh, and I, when I was giving my remarks at the opening, I said, Chris, Flynn has been videotaping and talking about this project since the very beginning, and he's been running shows. And that's part of a campaign to engender community support. And why is that tunnel 
so important. It was a connection between the communities of Franklin and Bellingham. It was an opportunity to provide open space and recreation for members of our community. It was a way uh, to get people active and engaged and uh, you know, a community that has a rich gem of a resource that's free of charge and out there and available. So, you know, uh, life is a campaign. And uh, if you uh, move people and motivate people and develop a great synergy, you can accomplish amazing things. And uh, to me, that's the uh, secret sauce in campaigning. I know it was a lengthy answer, but uh, you threw me a softball. I'm, I can expand on that just a touch because uh, you're reflecting on things that Tip O'Neill always believed in. Number one, all politics is local. And number two, Tip always said, people love to be thanked. People love to be asked. Yep. Yeah, I remember uh, Jeff was uh, uh, kind enough to invite me to be part of a, of a group of people. I guess it would be your current kitchen cabinet relative to um, at least a decision you were making uh, for Congress to endorse somebody for Congress. And he made that an open process, which was uh, and had uh, a winnowed the field down to, I believe, four potential candidates or three potential candidates for endorsement and asked uh, his cabinet to uh, provide him with some thoughtful uh, discourse after they had listened to each candidate. And it was a lengthy process, but it was an honor to be there and gave us a window into uh, the thought process that goes behind that type of endorsement, but also more importantly, gave us a voice. And to me, that was incredibly unique. Um, and clearly Jeff was vested in the whole process and listened to our opinions and came out with an endorsement as a result. Uh, and you just don't, Jeff, I don't see a lot of that done in local politics. Um, and I think it's, it's terribly unique, but awfully effective. I, I agree. I mean, it's, uh, you know, um, when I hear people say that, um, uh, I don't trust government and government's a terrible thing. I remind them that uh, the school that gave you the education is part of uh, your government. Uh, the roads and bridges that you drive on to get to the store or your job are, are, are there from the government. The clean air that you breathe, the, the, uh, the safe water that you drink, the public health system that protects you in a pandemic. These are all parts of your government. The police that you call uh, when you're in trouble, the the fire department that comes to your house uh, if it's burning down. Those are all pieces of your government. And those are pieces of you because we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. So if you insult your government, you're in effect uh, uh, casting aspersions upon yourself. Uh, because if you don't like what you see, uh, you have an opportunity uh, to get involved and do something about it. And uh, there's nothing uh, more uh, attractive to me than to see groups of young people getting engaged, speaking up, and stepping into the process to let their voice be heard, because that's the key to uh, uh, success in our government. And uh, I'm also encouraged when I see uh, tremendous turnout at elections. And, uh, you know, I know our most recent election that occurred on Tuesday, we saw 80.8%. So let's call it 81% of the registered voters turning out for that election. 
Um, it wasn't the highest in terms of percentage turnout, but I can tell you it was the highest in the number of voters that turned out. We had uh, 19,797 19, people show up at the polls. That's a record for the number of people who showed up in this community. And uh, elections are the foundation stone of democracy. That's, uh, that's Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and to have that uh, occur, I would love to see 100%. Um, I don't know that I'll ever see that, but uh, what we tried to do uh, in the legislature in 2020 with the pandemic was to pass a mail-in voting system that would increase the opportunity and likelihood that people would show out and show up and vote and so that you could send it in by mail you could vote early or you could go the day of the election and vote and what i have taken from that is that people appreciated the opportunity to vote in the way that was most comfortable to them and um, i think it's something that we're gonna we're gonna uh, see here forever in massachusetts and i'm excited by that because I want to hear what's on people's minds uh, at the polls, and an election is the best way to see how they feel. I might not like what I hear, uh, but uh, you know something? I like the fact that I have the opportunity to hear it. To recap, uh, Karen Spicker has been reelected as a state senator from some of the districts in Franklin, and so has Rebecca Roche been reelected as a uh, state senator from some of the other precincts in Franklin. I was really thought that Matt Kelly uh, would gain or uh, garner a lot more percentage of the vote that he did. And Julie Hall, I had interviewed, she ran uh, for the U.S. Congress uh, against uh, Jake, uh, how do you pronounce Jake's last name? Auchincloss. Auchincloss. And I, I thought Julie, uh, she was a, a, a military colonel, uh, worked in the hospital area, and uh, I thought she had uh, some ideas to be put forward, but I don't know whether it was a lack of money, uh, a, a lack of media attention, but neither one of those candidates uh, seemed to be able to get a foothold is do you see is there an inherent uh bias uh so great for people to get reelected that to overturn them from office is almost impossible or, or what is your observation about why some of the people just don't seem to be able to uh, mount a campaign uh, that would make the race really close well, um, I would say, you know, in the case of, of Matt Kelly, I, I want to say I was incredibly impressed by the team uh, that he put together. I, I would say I think he got off to a slow start. But around June, I saw his uh, campaign uh, really taking off and beginning to flourish and beginning to get that message out. Uh, one of the... Um, one of the drawbacks of 2020 is that in a local race, one of the most important ways to win 
is to touch voters. And when I say touch voters, I mean call them on the phone, knock on their door, send them a piece of direct mail, uh, and, and communicate in some one-on-one -on -one fashion with that voter. The most important piece of that is getting out and knocking on a door. So when I first ran in 2012, I knocked on over 15,000 doors. And it's incredible uh, the reaction when you go to somebody's door and they say to you, I've never spoken to a politician before. And uh, it goes back to what Peter was talking about with Tip O'Neill, uh, asking somebody for their vote. To look somebody in the eye and say, I'm running for this office. Here's a bit about me. I would appreciate your support and your vote. Do you have any questions? What's important to you? To have a conversation like that, even if it's only for two or three minutes, uh, is vital to connecting and touching people. Well, in 2020, that was impossible because we had social distancing in place and uh, we had tremendous restriction on the ability to make one-on-one -on -one connection. So that's one thing I would say uh, in terms of uh, making it difficult for somebody to win. But in the Auchincloss Julie Hall race, th that was two new candidates uh, vying for uh, an open seat. And uh, so they were both under the same restriction because neither one of them had been an incumbent. And uh, the only one who had held elective office, as a matter of fact, uh, was Julie Hall. So she um, was the closest to an incumbent. But they had to adapt to new ways of campaigning. And I'll tell you, uh, Jake uh, really embraced the new technology. I guess he's, he's 32 or 33 years old. So uh, this, he grew up with technology. Uh, I was using IBM punch cards when I was in college. But uh, it, it's so he was able to uh, make that connection because I saw him uh, early on getting uh, interviewed uh, by the Boston Globe before he was even in the race. Kevin Cullen did a magnificent column uh, for him. Uh, he was out on um, uh, on the Channel Five TV show, which is on Sunday mornings. Uh, he was one of uh, only, I think, only two of the nine candidates who were running actually uh, sat in and did an interview on that show. Uh, but he would show up. Um, you know, I, there's a book on my bookshelf uh, behind me uh, that uh, Jake had gone to a, uh, an event um, and uh, he knew I was going to be there. He was uh, he wanted me to endorse him in the race uh, because he wanted to connect with somebody in the community who um, he felt could help him in the race. And so he would go to events where he knew I was going to be. And I, I remember it distinctly. It happened to be at Senator Spilka's house. And he handed me this uh, Gordon Wood book on the American Revolution. And he said, Jeff, I, I know you're a lover of history and I thought you would appreciate this book. And uh, that was such a connection and I said, this guy knows what he's doing. He knows how to connect with people and he does his homework. And I have no, I, you know, as I watched him develop and followed him, I said, he's probably gonna be the next Congressman 
for the 4th Congressional District. He adapted to the change, he adapted to the environment, and he did it quite well, and he did what I said at the outset of this conversation. He made the effort to connect and touch voters, and uh, that's why um, he was successful, and uh, I Jeff, think he'll that, do a great job. In that particular race, well, Jake did connect, and he did all of those things, obviously, and, and did them well. He also spent a lot of money. Uh, I know in the primary, he outspent uh, his opponents quite significantly. Yeah. Um, do you see that as a major factor in um, congressional races and local politics? I don't money see it as a, as a major, major factor. I mean, you need money. Uh, in order to be successful and in order to get your message out. I actually saved every piece of mail I got from that congressional race Um, because that's, you know, he spent a lot of money on direct mail pieces. And I wanted to look at those direct mail pieces to see what message was being conveyed, how it was being conveyed, in which of the messages is, was going to be received best. So I studied all of those pieces. And uh, Jake's uh, military background really screamed out from his pieces. He, he uh, talked about that frequently in, in leading troops in, in Afghanistan. And that was a, a message that came through. And he's, he's got leadership experience despite his young age. The other piece where money helped him tremendously is he was the first one to be out on TV in the 4th Congressional District. The other piece that money can't buy you uh, was that column that Kevin Cullen did in The Globe. And the title of the piece was Run, Jake, Run. And uh, here's a a well-known columnist from The Globe giving a boost like that. Uh, To me, that was one of the... uh, that certainly caught my attention. You know, he did spend a lot of money, but so did uh, several other candidates in that race. Money didn't get him that seat. It was his message, and uh, uh, he was, he's a progressive, but he was the more conservative of the Democrats running in that race. And I also think that that was a message that resonated uh, with people in the district. And keep in mind, he's he's representing probably the wildest district in uh, Massachusetts. It, it's the wealthy communities of Wellesley and Newton uh, coming through Franklin and then going down to uh, Fall River and uh, that area of the state, which is not doing well uh, in terms of wealth. So uh, he had to adapt to multiple communities, and um, he connected. Jeff, in the last town special election in 2015, 1% of the voters turned out. We're having a special election on December 5th to replace a town council seat. There are four really different candidates that are running. Uh, Cobb for Jello is a young uh, person that... Uh, That's Kobe. Kobe, Kobe Frangelo. Kobe Frangelo uh, is a young uh, person, graduated uh, from college, has a master's degree in uh, public uh, service relations. Uh, 
educationally very well trained in, I think, in, in uh, both local and other administrative ways that government should work. Gregory Chickless is uh, an owner of a uh, laboratory. He has a PhD in biochemistry. Uh, he is an expert on coronavirus. His company uh, deals with coronavirus. Kentera Sopopoli. Uh, well, I call him KP. Yeah, that's KP what he Sampoli. says, KP. Yes. Sampoli. Just let's uh, call him KP, and we, we, neither one of us will uh, destroy his name. He's a you know, great, great man. All, all the candidates in this race are great folks. And Erlen, uh, Alan Earls, who is the father of the person that is vacating the seat. Now, there's quite a diversity in, in these four candidates, but you pointed out uh, one of the reasons that this may be a more interesting race, and that is because what it's held in, in about mail-in voting. Sure. Now, the, this race uh, was established by the town council after uh, Eamon Earls left. And I think when they set the date of the vote, uh, they set it for Saturday. So it's Saturday, December 5th. And I think the idea was, hey, can we increase voter turnout by putting it on a Saturday, number one. But I don't think they anticipated that uh, mail-in voting would apply to that particular election. And if you may, if you recall, when those applications were sent in the mail uh, back in July, uh, there was a box that you could check, and it could say, "Do you want a mail-in ballot for all elections in 2020?" And it's my understanding that approximately 9,000 people checks the check the box for all elections. So now the town. Uh, not only is having the election on a Saturday, but they uh, have to mail ballots to about 9,000 people. So I think we are definitely going to, uh, you know, blow that 1% turnout into the wind. And to me, that's a good thing because I always say to people, uh, the closer you are to the person on the ballot in terms of uh, their residential location, um, the more uh, things that they can do to affect your life. And uh, local elections are incredibly important uh, for the day-to-day -day activity in your life, uh, setting local tax rates, uh, setting local zoning laws and ordinances and, and, and going on. So I think local elections uh, have the most impact on your life, but remarkably have the lowest voter turnout. I'm hoping that uh, that changes uh, with the December 5th election because uh, it, it is so important. And if you compare the turnout for a local election with the 81% turnout that we had in the presidential election, and the president is the furthest from your life and the impact on uh, your daily life, yet more people show up to vote in a presidential election than a local election. And I'm hoping with uh, the opportunity to uh, vote by mail. I'm not sure if they're going to do early voting for the election, uh, but also a Saturday election will bolster the turnout for that election. And you've got, as you said, Frank, four very diverse candidates. And uh, I can say that the one who's able to connect to the voters the best 
is likely going to be the one that's going to prevail in that election. You mentioned that you've been involved in uh, making commercials, both on a state and national scene. What what is what is some of the issues that you would like to uh, put forward? Well, the most important thing to understand about television is that it's very visceral. The first campaign that I ever worked on was actually an issue campaign. And that really goes back a long way. And it was very historical, by the way. And it's the thing that really put me on the map as a director. The issue was... And please Ohio. tell people that that was not the Abraham Lincoln election. No, it was not. No, no, it was. Okay. It Thank was the you. hard. It was the Harding era. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, the the issue campaign that I did was called Ohioans for a Free Press. It was the Hustler campaign that went to the U.S. Supreme Court and a First Amendment argument. And as Larry Flint said when he came out of the U.S. Supreme Court, if the First Amendment protects a smut peddler like me, it protects everyone. My job was to produce a First Amendment campaign for Ohioans for a free press. And what I did was I took the Bill of Rights and with a big meat hook of a hand and a big magic marker, I started redacting the Bill of Rights on camera scratching out one after the other slowly, you know, with that sort of blackboard going on in the background, the ominous music and the voice of God voiceover. You know, the Bill of Rights is on trial in Ohio. Uh, Won many of awards because such a visceral campaign and it touched people deeply uh, and overwhelmingly the law was defeated. So what were they trying to do? Well, there was a law on the books in Ohio or a law that was pending uh, with respect to trying to define pornography and to eliminate it. Now, obviously, it's a real hot button issue. And and so the extent to which the First Amendment is tested in this argument is what constitutes free speech. That's really the argument. And of course, it gets a bit unsavory to talk about what is at the bottom of free speech Um, and the notion of community mores and psychology play into it and you have to pick your position. So it was an emotional campaign to be involved in and to figure out where you wanted to be. My worldview as someone in the media is I take on a somewhat lawyerly view of it with respect to the legal concept of zealous advocacy. When I am working on a campaign, am I a zealous advocate for this campaign? And am I doing all I can within the bounds of conscience to represent the issue or the person uh, respectfully uh, and to help them tell their story in an emotionally compelling way on television? Um, That is, is sort of the crux of where I took my position on this. That's fascinating. I, my first introduction to Franklin politics was back in 1998 on a free speech issue hmm. uh, where I had to uh, bring a case in the Norfolk Superior Court on behalf of someone uh, in order to protect their ability to speak. I didn't 
necessarily support what was uttered from this gentleman, mm-hmm. but I certainly supported his right to say it. And that's and, where we were uh, in the same position. I, I, I love to hear that story. And uh, I would love to see that ad if you still have a copy of it. Somewhere buried in the archives, I do. Well, I, I want to see it. Pete, do you see issues in the presidential election around speech? Totally. Uh, and so going into the 70s and the early 80s, I did a lot of political work. But as we as we moved into the 80s, I saw the Republican Party starting to change. And I saw politics beginning to change in ways that I felt uncomfortable with, with respect to the zealous advocacy issue. Would I produce a commercial or a campaign that constituted what I believed to be a falsehood? That gets to be an issue, a crisis of conscience. Um, And I couldn't go there. Uh, And I saw more and more work moving in that direction. And so it becomes the argument between logic and rhetoric. Now, one can say rhetoric, but in the 80s, what we began to know as spin meisters, the term of that time, spin doctors, uh, and and so on. Uh, Spin became, in my mind, more than spin. That's the bottom line. I think uh, taking off on what you're saying, um, the tone and tenor, Mm-hmm. that I've seen in mm-hmm. the elections Ranker. is extremely disappointing to me. And I've always maintained that, uh, and, and I was sitting there in the convention in Philadelphia in 2016 when Michelle Obama gave her speech mm-hmm. and said, when they go low, we go high. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, a poster from that campaign and that uh, that evening is hanging in my law office today. And, and I said, you know, I'm going to set an example as a leader mm-hmm. not to get in the trenches and not to uh, fight dirty in a campaign. I'm going to speak about what I'm going to do and what I can do. And I want people to evaluate me on that as opposed to what's so bad mm-hmm. uh, about my opponent and I've tried to live up to that as much mm-hmm. as possible. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's very difficult to bite your tongue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was particularly difficult for me to do that in the 2020 election cycle. But I did it. And I focused on what I've done and what I will do. And I think the proof is in the pudding. Mm-hmm. When 94% of the people support you, that's the right way to go about it. And it's, it concerns me that uh, we are at the most divisive point in our uh, United States uh, that it is concerning. Mm-hmm. And I, I know people who will say, well, I, I think America is burning and it's falling apart. Um, it brings me back to, if you really want to reflect on it, watch or read something from John Meacham. There's a great movie out uh, based on his book, The Soul of America. Mm -hmm. which talks about some real ugly events that have occurred in America up to today. Uh, We've been down this road before. We managed to come out of it. I'm confident that we'll come out of it again, uh, but it requires real leadership and real focus on trying to develop a community Mm 
and ways that we can all work together as opposed to hating our own brothers and sisters. You know, I'm trying to encourage people to operate that way. And uh, that's what's going to lead us out of this dark period in American history. I think that's a really interesting take on this Trumpism and the uh, disregard of the truth and um, the lack of uh, scrutiny relative to it comes what, it, what comes out of people's mouths has infected not only our national politics, but even locally. And we've seen it here, right here in Franklin, mm-hmm. uh, where that same type of disregard for the truth and uh, desire to rally the worst among us, the worst traits, character traits in us, and uh, bring those to the forefront in an effort to um, to garner support has become true even here on the local politic level. And so my concern about what Jeff said is that, you know, I, I think what, what you said, Jeffrey, about not going low is really good for the long run. I, I am concerned about all of the entry points that people have relative to this type of discourse. So it's coming through all sorts of social media channels. It's coming through television, print. Uh, there's a reluctance of people. Twitter has just started to flag even the president. But but generally speaking, it's a, it's a wide open landscape, particularly local locally for people to really, really do some real harm uh, relative to their, their lack of uh, reverence for the truth. So I just wonder in the shorter run, if people uh, don't have more of a responsibility to roll up their sleeves and call people out and fact check them and, and really stand up to them. Because what I see yeah. is more I of a reluctance even yeah. to fact check people because they just they see that yeah. as going low. You know, uh, fact checking is not going low. Mm-hmm. Uh, calling people out on on misstatements and uh, and I'll talk about the police reform vote that I took in July, which led to uh, an amazing amount of rancor in this community and a, a a large amount of misinformation about what the significance of my vote was, and to accuse me of not backing public safety in this community. Nothing could be further from the truth. But I stuck with my message of saying, here's what I did. Here's what that vote meant. And boy, do I ever uh, back the uh, public safety officials in this community. And I had three police chiefs who stood up for me and said, we've known Jeff for 20 years and he's had our back and we know he'll have it in the future. I will share with you uh, from my observations at the polls on Tuesday, those people who were walking around with back the blue flags and signs were the first ones not to respect the blue in following the rules of civic engagement at the polls. Mm. Who were the police called to intervene and speak to about not complying with the rules? It was those who pretend to back the blue who are actually disrespecting the blue. And I think that irony should not go unnoticed. And that's the behavior that we need to call out. But you don't have to be disrespectful. You can do it in a manner that you help people see what's really going on. Open their eyes. And you could do that in a positive manner. I just, I I think it's, 
this issue is probably, in my opinion, it's a symptom uh, of, of, a, of a deeper problem that we have societally. And, we, and like you said, we've been here before. McCarthyism, you know, we've been here before. We've seen this uh, worldwide. It's, it's a very human response to some stressors. But, uh, and I do think that uh, long-term, it's something that we have a cure for, and we know what that cure is. And that's light, you know, and that's uh, success, and it's um, unity, and it's uh, positive messaging. But in the meantime, and bringing more people into the fold, exactly, allowing more uh, people to participate and have the opportunity to be part of it. Right. But I see that the country is fifty-fifty divided. It almost is like the rural areas of the country that haven't necessarily been affected by coronavirus 19. And the urban areas are two divergent thought processes. And Joe Biden is never, ever going to be able to unite the country because those people that follow uh, uh, Trump, uh, the president, uh, in voting for him are, are there's nothing that's going to change their mind, even if he loses you know, the election. Joe Biden can't do it alone. No, he okay? can't. No, he but can't. He, he's got to rely on folks like us in the local communities to build a sense of community in your local districts and, and work it its way up. But he can set the tone. Mm-hmm. He can give us something to aspire to. Uh, it's, it's, um, you know, he did his address, um, his last major campaign address from the battlefields in Gettysburg. Right. The symbolism of that address, uh, is not lost on me and the tone and tenor of that address is not lost on me, but it's up to us to capture pieces of those remarks and capture pieces of those words and put them into action. Uh, uh, three three pieces I'm going to uh, share with you. So I've already talked about John Meacham and the Soul of America. Read the book, watch the movie. Tremendous things. Pete Souza, who was the White House photographer for both Ronald Reagan and Barack Obama, mm-hmm. did a an amazing documentary called The Way I See It. I urge you to take a peek at that and watch the world unfold through the eyes of a photographer. And then finally, uh, uh, Robert Putnam, uh, we actually had him out in Franklin about three or four years ago uh, to talk about one of his books. He's just come out with uh, a new book. Uh, He's the uh, author of Bowling Alone, which was about 20 years ago. Uh, Then his uh, next book was Our Kids, and I'm blanking on the title of his most recent one. But it's about building uh, that sense of community and coming together to help one another. Uh, you know, it almost has religious undertones of us, uh, you know, being our brother's keeper. But, uh, you know, that's, that's the beauty of, of living together in a world. And, and we have to do that. Uh, I go back to James Madison and uh, the Federalist Papers. He said, if, if men were angels, there wouldn't be any need for government. Well, we know that men are not angels, but we have to live together. And government is, uh, is that choice on the things that we choose to do together. 
and let's try to do it well. And, and I think if we start at a local level and work our way up and follow the tone set by our president, then together we can do it. I said early on in this show that with good synergy, great things can happen. And I truly believe that. And uh, I have faith that America will come out of this just as we've come out of the Civil War and every other uh, trouble spot in our 240-year history. Let me ask an economic question uh, that when I asked candidates, they, they kind of really avoided this economic question, especially uh, uh, Jake. Are you telling me has, I should go to the bathroom right espe- now? <laughs> especially Jake, who uh, has a degree from Harvard University in economics. He seemed, in my opinion, uh, to be lacking in being able to answer economic questions. The, the overall economic package from the federal government, first of all, is tremendously high, putting to debt, and probably China is buying most of that debt. And the overall economic package, to me, only helped the wealthy and only helped businesses. Starting with Chrysler, when we bail Chrysler out, it seems like now it, it is a priority and an accepted fact that our purpose is to bail out businesses airlines, stock markets, um, the savings and loan scandal back in Nixon time, um, and even the state of Massachusetts is giving $51 million grants directly to businesses. It seems now that we have a psyche that businesses are more important to bail out than citizens in, in raising the ability of citizens to live a, a fairly good economic life. Uh, where, where am I wrong? Well, I, I think government has a role in uh, keeping the economy alive. And uh, I know Jim's going to roll his eyes, but I'm going to go back to uh, the Hoover Dam and the importance of that government-private-public partnership that uh, transformed. That had a public purpose. It, it certainly did. It had and, a public and purpose. It, it had a public purpose in promoting uh, safety, uh, you know, uh, taking uh, away from flooding and making an area of the country that was habitable for people. And it produces power for over a million homes in that area. The city of Los Angeles and the city of Las Vegas probably wouldn't exist as they are today, but for the power that's generated from that uh, tremendous dam. And that was government intervention that came in that had to navigate uh, the state's rights and water rights for seven states and determine how they were going to tame the Colorado River. They did tame that river, and economic success has been booming out in that area of the country. That's a small example. I take uh, when when uh, we were lacking uh, personal protective equipment uh, at the beginning of this particular pandemic, uh, we turned uh, to the government to try and help some businesses ramp up uh, and produce PPE because we realized our supply chain from China was, uh, was crippling 
uh, our ability to get needed personal protective equipment into our hospitals and to our public safety officials. And, uh, you know, I certainly fought hard to get a $2 million, uh, $2 million grant for Contolo mass manufacturing so that they could begin uh, producing personal protective equipment. I'm yeah, glad again, I did because they again, created... Yeah. That was serving a public purpose. We needed that type of uh, of mask. We, I mean, protective clothing. Here was an opportunity. Uh, restaurants should we be giving money directly to to restaurants, to barbers, to to small businesses just because they're small businesses? The well, need to public, be the need. Think of the public be. purpose they serve. You know, uh, 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 restaurants in the community. Uh, serve a particular purpose. I, I don't think that we should be in the in the business of making sure that everyone succeeds. But when we enact rules and regulations as a government that says how many people can go into your restaurant, where they can sit, what you can serve, how you can serve it, whether you do paper uh, menus or or the traditional menus, we set a great number of restrictions on these businesses. It's our obligation to help them out when they are uh, complying with the rules and regulations we set in place. We put very strict rules in place. And if we didn't help them, these businesses would fail. Our main streets would become empty. Many people would be out of work. Our unemployment, which went through the roof in this pandemic would have been worse. There are times when your government has to step in to help out in, and this was a, a public health crisis uh, of a magnitude that we hadn't seen in a hundred years. Uh, I will tell you that we're trying to help out in the higher ed space because we have 106 institutions in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts that serve communities Many of them are the largest employers in the communities they live. Many of them uh, uh, shop in the stores in that community, eat in the restaurants in the communities. We need to help these higher education institutions survive and thrive because the communities they reside in depend upon them. Uh, I'm not pushing for uh, you know socialism, communism. I'm I'm speaking about uh, downright. Oligarchy. I'm talking about helping people who are helping us to get out of a pandemic and uh, in helping them to overcome this hurdle so that they can survive and thrive on their own at the end of the pandemic. It's the ability of the consumer to be able to support a business. If the consumer uh, financially can't help, the business is going to fail. Yeah, but we created conditions that were a recipe for failure for many businesses because so, we told them you can't have customers. Your, your, your restaurant, you have to go down to a 50% capacity. And, you know, if we left it to their ability, you know, say, well, we're not going to comply with the law. We're going to put 100% capacity and everybody's going to get sick and they're going to overwhelm our hospitals and they're going to spread the infection. No, we don't want that. We, we want you to help us, and in return, we will help you. Pete, what is the closing 
discussion that you would like to put forward for us to to take an overview of uh, the national scene? Obviously, um, you know, here we are, and you you dated this program in the beginning, and and we live in this time capsule. Um, and retrospectively, I think Bernie Sanders, you know, over a month ago, talked about how he thought the national election might well shake out. And there's a, a brief clip we can run uh, that reflects his comments, his prescient comments, uh, with respect to uh, where we are, where we're going. And uh, I'll play that right now. Hold on. My view is every vote must be counted. You're going to have a situation, I suspect, in states like Pennsylvania, um, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, other states, where they are going to be receiving huge amounts of mail-in ballots. And unlike states like Florida or Vermont, they're not being able, for bad reasons, to begin processing those ballots until, I don't know, election day, or maybe when the polls close. That means you're gonna have states dealing with perhaps millions of mail-in ballots. Here is my worry. What polls show and what studies have shown is that for whatever reason, Democrats are more likely to use mail-in ballots. Republicans are more likely to walk into polling booths on election day. It is likely that the first votes that will be counted will be those people who came in on election day, which will be Republican. And here is the fear, and I hope everybody hears that, it could well be that at 10 o'clock on election night, Trump is winning in Michigan, he's winning in Pennsylvania, he's winning in Wisconsin, and he gets on the television, he says, thank you Americans for reelecting me, it's all over, have a good day. But then the next day and the day following, all of those mail-in ballots start getting counted and it turns out that Biden has won those states. At which point Trump says, see, I told you the whole thing was fraudulent, I told you those mail-in ballots were crooked, and I got, you know, we're not going to leave office. So that is a worry that I and, and a lot of people have. So people should be aware of that possibility. And when did Bernie the Time Traveler record that? That was recorded about 30, 40 days ago. <laughs> so it's very, very prescient. Uh, that said, um, it, I, I, play it because it opens the door to a discussion about what, you know, what's wrong? What, what can we learn from this? Um, what I put forward for consideration is that right now at the federal level, there's a tremendous respect for states' rights and every state organizes its election accordingly, but it's not uniform. It's not uniform at all. Now, I understand that the federal government has to let the states do what they do, but I posit for your consideration the president is a very different office than every senator, every national representative in the House of Congress, every governor, every other office in the world is different than the president because essentially they're all statewide elections. You, will vote, you vote for a senator for your state. You vote for congressman for your state. But the president is indeed the president of all the people. And my argument would be that in that and in only that case, we need uniform election laws. That is, we need to count all the ballots before the election. Mail-in ballots, as Jeff pointed out, I think are here as a permanent fixture. 
as part of Build Back Better. And I think more and more, particularly with an aging population, people will take advantage of that. And so in future elections, I would like to know that all the ballots that were sent in early are treated responsibly, prepared in advance, and prepared to be counted same day to avoid what happened this time out. Secondly, I think there are a lot of people who more recently looked to the electoral college as a problem. One can argue that. I, I would move the issue, my view again, and this is my opinion, with respect again to the presidential election, I would eliminate winner take all without making the electoral college go away. There are a short handful of states that don't do winner take all, but all of the rest of them are winner take all. And that creates a fundamental imbalance in the value of everyone's vote. And what happens is every state now becomes a battleground state. Every state contributes by measure pro rata to the outcome of the presidency and the popular vote and the electoral vote are now much better synchronized. That, those are the two things I put on the table. You know, if somebody asked me, okay, Pete, you're the emperor, what would you do? There's my answer. <laughs> this is Frank Falby. You have been listening to part one on 102.9 FM WFPR, and stay tuned. This is part one. We're going to be right back in a moment after station identification with part two. <laughs> 